This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about a division within our nation. But this isn't exactly the division we're accustomed to talking about, the one between Republicans and Democrats, though it does find some expression in the severe partisanship that we're experiencing right now. That's why we're talking about it. This division goes much deeper than modern partisanship to the founding of our country. It takes the form of a kind of paradox contained within the Declaration of Independence, and it's not buried deep within the document. It's right there in the second paragraph, one of the most famous passages in American letters. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I was taught early on to read that text as aspirational, or at least that's how I told myself to read it, and that might be because it's less troubling to read it that way. To see the slavery, indigenous genocide, sexism, and classism that undermine the sentiment as a grand error rather than a purposeful exception. But that's not the way everyone sees it. And according to our guest, historian Heather Cox Richardson, how you read that famous line determines how you see the American project and what, ultimately, you think of democracy. That question of what we really mean by equal is at the core of Richardson's latest book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. That book is the subject of this conversation with Crosscut's Canute Berger from the Crosscut Festival, which took place in early May. And as the title suggests, it's a question we continue to wrestle with today. This conversation is sponsored by Comcast, which would like to share the following message. Comcast connects Washingtonians to moments that matter, helping their fellow residents stay connected to their families, workplaces, school, entertainment, and the world through the internet. Comcast Washington is dedicated to serving their local neighbors and working with nonprofits, businesses, and cities to create equitable access to the internet and other technologies for communities statewide. Visit washington.comcast.com to learn more. All right. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, you can email us at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Now, in your book, How the South Won the Civil War, you look at a fundamental division in American ideas. On the one hand, some believe that freedom and equality are essential to democracy. On the other hand, many believe that democracy poses a threat to freedom and liberty. This seems like a pretty big disagreement about how to run our country. Can you explain the divide? Well, what you're referring to is what I called in this book uh, the American paradox. And that is that from the very beginning, the idea that all men are created equal, a principle that really can be expanded to include far more than simply men or white men as they thought about it at the time. But the idea that all people are created equal depended from the beginning on the idea that some people were simply not welcome at all in American society. So um, people of color and women uh, were by definition unfree or unequal 
to, to enable that idea of equality to exist, you had to have removed from the body politic those that were considered unworthy. So what I was trying to set up was the idea that in our history, equality has always depended upon inequality, but it doesn't have to. That is simply, a, you know, sort of a function of the, the way our country was settled and, and, and the, the early history that led into the Declaration of Independence and then, of course, the Constitution. Um, so how has that played out? I mean, I know the two documents you just referred to um, kind of differ in their approach or they are taken by different sides in the argument. Um, so how has it played out politically from the founding to, uh, you know, say the mid 19th century? To yesterday? <laughs> um, the, uh, the, um, the Declaration and the, and the Constitution are very different documents. The Declaration sets out our principles, and they were an attempt to tell the rest of the world why it was okay to rebel against a government. And then the Constitution, of course, sets out uh, uh, the body of laws on which our our government is based. And they do very different things, even though a lot of the writers were the same. But what the uh, what I tried to argue in the book was that this the fact that inequality is baked into our concept of equality, meant that from the very beginning of American democracy, there was a flaw in it, you know, fundamental flaw that would enable people who were anti-democratic, who were oligarchs, to go ahead and deploy a rhetorical strategy that would, would enable them to destroy democracy. Because if you think about it, it's a funny idea. If you have a democracy, why would people vote to end a democracy? What would make them do that? So what the book was kind of uh, trying to do was to figure out how people who were against democracy, how oligarchs who really thought they should run the world, went about breaking down the democratic process. And what I suggested was that this idea that Equality dependent upon inequality gave them a wedge to work against democracy throughout our history, and and it happens in a series of steps. What what you know first happens is as people uh, of means begin to garner power, what they do is they put in place a series of laws that uh, that destabilize the population. And you can do that in a bunch of different ways. But in America, the destabilization has tended to be around economics. And then once they have started to unsettle um, the, the Democratic voters, in the case of America before the Civil War, it was largely white male voters, you start to unsettle them and you start to, they start to say, wait a minute, you know, what's wrong with this picture? You know, we're all supposed to be working our way up in society and, and you guys are getting real rich real fast and what they do then is they uh, convince that those uh, voters that they're the that they are in fact sliding back that they're not doing as well as they should be but that the problem is not the people in power the, the problem is somebody else they have to create a different group of people to hate and then once they have have started getting that into society the idea that some people aren't just aren't as good as others that they really should be um, you know sort of kept down then the the oligarchs take over the media so that it's very hard to get alternative ideas in there saying, wait a minute, the problem is not those people, the problem is the people in charge. And then finally they take over the government. But the trick to them doing that is always to make uh, voters think from the very beginning that the real problem, the reason they are falling behind is because some of those people who were unequal are trying to become equal. And if they do that, they're going to take things away from that initial group of voters. So it, it's, an, it's a linguistic argument in a way, or a rhetorical argument in a way, but it takes a look at the breakdown of a democracy. 
So you say that the South won the Civil War, yet the Civil War was fought ostensibly over slavery. Slavery was abolished. So how did the South win? So um, there, there are a, a bunch of ways to look at what I wrote there and why it is a title. Um, the How the South Won the Civil War is the title of the book. And what it's important to do is to remember what exactly I'm talking about when I say how the South won. And what I argued was that that concept of oligarchy, which is is actually has a number of layers to it, in America at least. It has the idea essentially that some people are better than others. Because what happens is that as wealth and power begin to move upward and begin to, uh, people who are at the top of the scale begin to exercise more and more power not just over the economy and over politics, but also over culture and over religion and over the media. So people start to say, well, you know, it's not that he was lucky, it's that he worked harder or or he's just better or, you know, he gets an education because he's smarter. It starts to break down the idea of democracy itself. And gradually, as I say, as um, as those that that rising group of people gains control over the media, increasingly you start to hear, well, you know, they're just better. You know, they, they just know more. They, they have better connections. They deserve the money that they make. And gradually society begins to spin around the idea that some people really are better than others, that we have this idea that everybody is created equal. It's in the, the, um, the declaration after all, but in reality, some people are just better than others. And you see this really dramatically in America before the Civil War when the elite Southerners, those um, in, those enslavers who held, you know, 25 to 50 and even more than 50 other human beings as their chattel, you know, by the 1840s, 1850s, they're literally starting to say that they're better than other people. And when they go ahead and put together the Confederate States of America, the cornerstone speech quite literally says that the Declaration of Independence, the cornerstone speech by Alexander Stevens, who becomes the vice president of the Confederacy, literally says that um, the problem with the Declaration of Independence was that the founders were wrong, that all men are created equal. So the ideology of the Confederacy is that some people are better than others, that some people really should rule and they um, they have better ideas they understand how the economy works and this becomes articulated really effectively in a speech in 1858 in the Senate by James Henry Hammond who's a senator from South Carolina and he literally says that the majority of people in the world are what he calls mud sills the pieces of wood in that you you thrust into the dirt in order to support a building and that they are you know they're they're hardworking and they're loyal but they're um, you know they're they're not very good at what they do they don't know how to work you know they'll if they're left to their own devices they'll be lazy and they'll just dance and they'll waste their time and 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 not really accomplish much but if they're overseen by people who really understand how the world works they're going to produce a lot and the trick is to make sure that what they produce continues to flow upward to the people at the top because they're the ones who really understand how to move the economy forward how to get good educations what fine art is and that if you can continue to have the money moving upward that you're going to go ahead and move society forward more effectively than if you actually let the people at the bottom use the the capital that they produce. 
So he articulates that in, um, in 1858. And the idea there is that really it's anti-democratic. Some people are better than others. And what I'm arguing in the book is that that ideology, which should have died in 1865 when the uh, the United States government and the North wins the Civil War and says, no, 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 we're all created equal, including in this case, African-American men. We're going to include them in the body politic and really strike back at the idea that some people are better than others, which was a real concern for people like um, like Lincoln and the other people who organized the Republican Party. But that ideology of the South moves to the West. And in the West, it lives really naturally because the West has a very different history than the American East. And it's based in a series of hierarchical um, societies, even before the United States acquires the, the majority of it with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And during the Civil War, even as the United States government is trying to break down gradations of society in the East, it's reinforcing them in the West through things like the um, the uh, the mass execution of the Dakotas in 1862 and the, the long walk of the Navajo in, in 64 and finally the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864 as well, when not only after the long march have you put indigenous people into what are essentially concentration camps, but in 64 you are, the the United States uh, uh, Army is literally um, uh, mutilating the bodies of the people that it massacres at Sand Creek. So you get the reinforcement of those hierarchies, and right there the Confederate ideology, that idea that some people are better than others, lives very naturally, and then it takes on its own life in the West in the figure of the American cowboy, which of course we've been living with ever since. Yeah, it, it, that seems like such a strange uh, contradiction because the cowboy is supposed to represent somebody who uh, not only is is independent of government but uh, independent of uh, authority of any kind, whether it's the railroad barons or the or the uh, plantation owners. Uh, so the idea of the American cowboy becoming a kind of avatar for oligarchy uh, is, 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 I don't know, I mean, that's hard to process that. Well, but think about it. Yeah, think about him. Think about the fact that he, first of all, in mythology, there's a difference between the real American cowboy uh, who did exist, but only for a very brief period of time, really from about 1866 to about 1886, when a, when a terrible um, blizzard uh, hits the, the, especially the northern plains after a drought and kills off a ton of the cattle. Um, and really at that point, the ranging turns to ranching, both for that reason and, and because of the fact that after barbed wire comes in 1873, it goes ahead and fences off a lot of that land and makes, it causes all the problems between the ranchers and the, I'm sorry, the rangers and the the settlers. But um, so they do exist. But the, the reality of cowboys, the reality, if you actually look at what their lives look like, their lives do not look statistically all that different. And this is a broad brush, but they don't look all that different than the lives of an industrial worker back east. The pay is very low. The conditions are really terrible. It's very, very dangerous work. Uh, the Most of the money goes to the, to the people who've invested in the cattle rather than in the men on the ground. Um, but in myth and, and a third of the cowboys are men of color as well. But in mythology, 
Uh, and the mythology is developed very early on in newspapers, especially Democratic newspapers, who are using the cowboy to push back against their concept that the Republicans back east are turning the government into socialism. They use that word beginning in 1871 by using a, an active government to level the playing field between white Americans and black Americans. They deliberately set up the idea of the cowboy as a hardworking man who's going to work his way up and he's fun loving and he's hardworking and he wants nothing of the government. Government. Again, caveat here, remember that the government invests more in the American West than it ever did in the American East. So the idea that the cowboy is doing it all on his own is, is completely mythology. But he's supposed to be working his way up and not wanting anything from, um, from the government. And he's going to be able to work his way up into a home with his good wife. You know, the, the cowboy's world is really a bro world, if you will. There are very few women in the mythology. In reality, you can't survive in the West without the kinship networks that women make possible. We know that now very, you know, historians are very aware of that. Um, but, but when you talk about that cowboy after I just set him up, you know who's not there, in addition to the fact that women are not there. The other people who aren't in that cowboy myth are the people of color, uh, the indigenous people, the Mexicans and the Mexican-Americans and the Asians and the Asian-Americans who are going really to be building the West. And they disappear under that cowboy myth as the people who are not part of it, not part of society, not hardworking, and whom the, the cowboy dominates. And that's... Um, that's, I think, a really important caveat to our image of the cowboy, because for all that he represents that myth, that myth has tucked within it a hierarchy that puts him at the top. Right. And the history of the settling of the West is very much, as you say, I mean, a history of, of deciding who, who counts and who doesn't. Uh, and uh, one of the questions I have uh, about that is, is the role of women in this uh, equation, uh, women getting the vote. Um, this was obviously a, you know, major uh, advance. Um, how, do, how has it changed, if anything, the, the dynamic that you're talking about? Well, one of the things that, that I felt like I didn't have enough room to cover in this book, uh, in part because I wanted to keep it really short, I wanted to make it readable, is the role of women in all of the mythologies that I talk about in that book. But one of the things that's interesting about the way that women get the vote in, um, you know, in the throughout the late 19th century and into the 20th. But um, but initially when women are agitating for the vote immediately after the Civil War, in um, especially around 1868 with the 14th Amendment and then going forward, what they're agitating for originally is the idea that as citizens, as people who participated in the American Civil War, as people who were instrumental in the survival of the United States government, women deserve equality because they are equal. That's going to help them get the vote in uh, in the territory of Wyoming in 1860, uh, 1869 and then in Utah in although that's a little bit of a different question. But um, what it's not going to do is to continue because after 1870, there's a real lull in women getting continuing to get the vote. And by the late 1880s, when people are once again discussing letting women vote, especially in the American West, which is what where the where uh, women's suffrage gets its really gets its feet on the ground 
uh, initially in the late 19th century. They're not talking about women being equal, about, you know, women have an equal right, end of discussion. They're talking about women purifying the government because they are women, because they are wives, and especially because they are mothers. And that's a really different thing. In that case, you're asking for suffrage based on this mythology of the the cowboy sort of man, the individualist man who is symbolized by the cowboy and whose women folk, if you will, are at home and are at home, uh, you know, taking care of the children and are bounded by this, uh, this society that again looks a great deal like the ideology of the American South before the Civil War. So women get the vote, but they get the vote in a really specific way, the idea that they're going to purify America. And I think you can see that when you look at the suffragist movements in the early 20th century, the women who are marching are not marching for equality for equality's sake. They're marching as wives and uh, as wives and mothers, and they march through Washington in white clothing, pushing babies. Um, and so the the idea there of there being um, a certain kind of person, a certain kind of family style, a certain kind of role. Uh, that makes you welcome in America is, I think, reinforced with the idea that women are going to vote because they're moms and because they're wives, not because they have inherently an equal right. And I think that is, again, a theme that you see carrying through into the 20th century and even into the 21st. Well, now that we've uh, got to our current century, I, uh, what, what do you make of the Capitol insurrection on January 6th? Well, there was a big leap there. <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't see it coming. I, I truly did not see it coming. Um, I, I, let me start by saying seeing that Confederate flag flying in the U.S. Capitol was a gut punch to people like me that I just never saw coming. And when I think of that, I think of the fact that never before did that happen. Um, even during the Civil War itself, when the soldiers were ranged around the Capitol in rings, as uh, Julia Ward Howe wrote about so movingly in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. They kept out that Confederate ideology because that's not what America stood for. And the fact that we had people in America who brought that flag and everything that it stood for into the heart, because the Capitol is the heart, of our American government still makes me sick to my stomach. So what do I make of why they were there and how they were there? Uh, I think we, have, uh, we are still living through, uh, and, and perhaps in a more um, uh, powerful way, a stronger way than we ever have before, this conflict between the ideologies that are at the heart of our American history. On the one hand, that we are all created equal and that our democracy should reflect that and our government should be one that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. And on the other hand, the idea that permitting that to happen is a form of socialism or a form of leveling or a form of redistribution of wealth that, um, according to the slaveholders before the Civil War, the framers never intended. And those two things are still at war, I think. And right now, there is reason to believe that those oligarchs are more powerful than they ever have been before. Well, you know, one of Donald Trump's uh, advisors, tech entrepreneur Peter Thiel, 
said, quote, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible. Um, you said that we're at a critical point for democracy, and uh, that quote seems to me to underscore exactly what, uh, what you're talking about. Here's a Western uh, tech entrepreneur uh, siding with, uh, you know, those Southern attitudes that you were talking about. Well, and, and push the, on to the rest of that quotation, because he goes on to suggest that the last time we could have both was the 1920s, because that's before people of color and women could vote. And um, But he's not the only one. You know, David Frum, uh, the conservative writer, observed at one point that um, if there were a clash between democracy and conservatism, that um, conservatism in, in the movement conservative sense, not in the, in the ideological sense coming out of Edmund Burke and the French Revolution and later on picked up and altered quite significantly by Lincoln, that if they had to make a choice between conservatism and democracy, that uh, the current day conservatives would choose their ideology and not democracy. Well, it, you know, in, in your writings, uh, these things, the, the, the kind of progressive impulse seems to come in waves uh, in your book on the history of the Republican Party to make men free. You write about, you know, there was Lincoln, there was Teddy Roosevelt, uh, there was Dwight Eisenhower, but the, the GOP seems to revert to this uh, other, uh, uh, this other mode. What do you think the future of the Republican Party is right now? Well, it's important to remember when you think about the, the future of the Republican Party right now um, is that the people who are currently in charge of the party are not traditional Republicans. And that was the point of that book you're referring to was to point out that the party had taken a really dramatic turn in the 1990s, coming actually out of the 1950s. But by the 1990s, it had taken a really dramatic turn um, by purging from the party the, the traditional Republicans, the ones that people like Newt Gingrich called rhinos, Republicans in name only, and that was a brilliant rhetorical strategy because, of course, it was actually the other way around, that the, the, the Gingrich revolutionaries were the ones who were um, Republicans in name only and were launching what was really quite a, a radical um, a new look, a new uh, kind of American government. And so right out of the bat, we're already talking about people who are not traditional Republicans. But within that faction, the movement conservative faction, as it became known, now they're splitting between what I've been calling business Republicans, the, the, the oligarchs, if you will, the people who think that they're the ones who know how to run the government and that what you need to do is cut regulation and cut taxes and move money upward because that's really how you create uh, you know, the most effective kind of, um, kind of uh, economy and, and prosperous society. And on the other hand, the, um, the racists and, and sexists and, and uh, white nationalists and, um, and white supremacists who they wedded uh, in the 1980s and the 1990s to go ahead and make sure they could continue to win because, in fact, a government that does actually, you know, um, support our infrastructure and provide a basic social safety net and regulate business is actually quite popular. So what you're seeing is those two things spread, uh, splitting apart right now. And, and what is the future? The future, I, I really do think at this point, either we are going to toss overboard democracy altogether and go full oligarchy, the way so many other countries are flirting with right now around the world, 
or in fact, we are going to reclaim that progressive, uh, and I wouldn't even call it progressive, I would, I would actually call it traditional American democracy that says that, you know, the government should belong to all of us and it should re respond to everybody's needs and not just the needs of a certain, a certain portion of the population. It's anybody's guess what's going to happen, but one of the things I try and do is encourage people to put some skin into the game and help us make that decision in a fair, in a, you know, in a fair way. We'll be back with more after this message. Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Heather, uh, we've got some questions here. Um, you, here's one question from Bill Moat. Uh, you've been in the field of history for a long time. Does your most recent book represent something you've basically been working on forever? And how That's has it been influenced question. by more recent happenings? That's a really great question. And the truth is, it's funny, a friend of mine says, um, she watches what I write and she watches the letters and she says she can always tell what the next book is gonna be. Um, I am learning and growing all the time. So I couldn't, the, the truth is that How the South Won is my smartest book by far. Um, and it, it, it builds on all the others, but no, it, it's just sort of, you get older, you learn more, you read more books, you think more things. And, um, and it, it was not, it did not come from, um, from, from 30 years before it, it grew quite naturally. And, and you can, I think you can actually see that I'm working on new material now and it does sneak through even when I don't expect it to. Uh, another question, how different are the current business Republicans from the anti-FDR, anti-New Deal Republican ideology of the 1930s? That's a great question. Um, I think they're very similar. And one of the things that I find interesting is that the, the vitriol with which you see business Republicans speaking, measured vitriol, mind you, but, um, but you know, when you listen to some of the things, for example, that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says about socialism and about um, how, you know, over his dead body sort of thing, uh, that's, you, you literally could lift those things directly from the 1920s and the 1930s. And really interestingly to me, once I was reading a series of hearings, uh, con congressional hearing after the depression, that talked that after the I'm sorry after the great crash and people were talking about how on earth can we sort of stimulate the economy or what should we do to to make this make this better, and they're interviewing a guy who was um, uh, on the stock exchange and a, a very wealthy man who made a great deal more money than the senators at the time uh, and the Congress people he was talking to, and he said that the only way that you could possibly come make the nation come back from the great crash and from the depression was to cut the salaries of school teachers and of, uh, of workers, of, of public workers, and um, because they were asking too much. They were costing too much money. 
And one of the, the Congress people said to him, well, you know, what about you? Why don't you take a pay cut? And he looked horrified and he said, well, I couldn't possibly. I barely make any money at all. And of course, he was making three times what the Congress people were at the time. And of course, was a very wealthy man. It later turned out that he was also a criminal. But, it, but that kind of the way you can fix the economy is to cut the salaries of people, of public workers. Really, at the time when I read it, you could have lifted it out of the 19, it was actually in the early 1930s, you could have lifted it at the Hoover administration, you could have lifted it from there and plopped it down right there in the, the 21st century, and it would have been quite at home right there then. So I think they're very similar, and the ideology is very similar. So the question is, is the fervor for holding on to Civil War mythologies any greater today than in decades past? such as the first half of the 20th century when many Confederate monuments were erected? Are we seeing another peak of emboldened passion or the final death rattles of an antiquated model? Um, well, those are really two questions, and I will start with the, the, the first. Um, this is, we are unusually attached to that, uh, to the Confederate symbols in this moment, and that is utterly a reflection of the 1890s and, of course, of the mythology around, in that period, around the Civil War. So what happens is you, you a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that the Confederate monuments rise immediately after the war. They don't. They actually rise in the 1890s through, through about the 1910s. Um, uh, maybe a little bit past the 1910s. And in that case, it's really interesting because that's the period when Confederate soldiers seem to symbolize, again, that individualism, the, the attempt to stand against the creeping encroachments of a large federal state. And the, 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 a number of Confederate monuments go up across the country, not only in the South, of course, they're primarily in the South, but there are a number in the West as well, and in the North, although many fewer, of course, in the North, still people alive who remember that war at that point. But you do get a lot in the West. And you get a lot of things in that period um, that, are that are trying to lionize what the South was about, especially a number of new American histories that come to define what we think about Reconstruction. Uh, and, and misdefine it as a period in which essentially um, the governments in which African-Americans participated ran amok and, and, and used too many tax dollars to redistribute wealth. And that's all, again, mythology. So why does that rise again now? Why does it become so powerful? Because after the Brown versus Board of Education decision of 1954 and after Eisenhower sends the troops to Little Rock in 1957 to protect the Little Rock Nine as they're going to integrate the um, Central High uh, Little Rock Central High School. Um, increasingly, uh, in 54 is Brown versus Board. 55 is national is the National Review, a William F. Buckley Jr.'s magazine, in which he says he's going to tell the violated businessman side of the story. But one of the things he does very early on is he begins to say that the government trying for civil rights is in fact a redistribution of wealth. He makes a tie between the idea that uses tax dollars to, for example, move, uh, not move, they don't have to actually move the troops, and that's a little complicated, but to, to support the troops at, uh, at Little Rock or, or to add and have programs that help people of color, that is going to have to be paid for by tax dollars, and it's largely going to be white tax dollars that does that. And by 55, National Review is hammering that, and increasingly the business people who are are really eager to get rid of the business regulations of the New Deal and of the Eisenhower years are hammering on the idea that any kind of civil rights is a mis misuse dollars. And one of the things that's from that is we get the rise again of the Confederate flag. 
We also get the rise of Westerns at the same time, remember, when you have so many Westerns on TV, but you get the Confederate flag, and it spreads in the 1970s especially, the, the, by 72, in 19, I'm sorry, 1972 and 1973, part because Northerners who might not have uh, racial animosities the way so many Southerners do, and there are a lot of Southerners, the new Southerners represented by people, represented by people like Jimmy in fact, are in favor of improving race relations and of getting rid of the racial biases that have plagued America until that point. Uh, the, the Confederate flag starts to get more traction because of the Vietnam War, where so many people in the North who might not have a racial axe to grind are interested in pushing back against the federal government because of its actions in Southeast Asia. So you start Heather? to get the idea that the Confederate flag is anti-government. It's much as pro-white supremacy. That's going to split apart, but that's why we've got it now and why it is such a powerful symbol now, um, especially of these people trying to reinstall that looks a lot like the 1890s. Well, Heather, thank you very much. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Um, thanks so much for this great uh, conversation and your insights. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Heather for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you'd like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month, or the deep regional history that Knut offers up on his Mossbacks Northwest series, go to CrossCut.com donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.